God's blessing on Jonathan. Uh, what a great opportunity we have again to be reconnecting to the Gospel of Mark. And, and perhaps some of you um, have already opened up your bulletin and looked at the green insert of sermon notes in there and have questioned uh, why, oh why, is the warning from the Canadian Broadcasting Standards Council printed in the sermon insert the, about the notes? where it says the following program contains scenes of violence, coarse language, and nudity intended for adult audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. What? In church? In the Bible? Well, you'll see in a moment why that is there. But let me, in passing, simply state, I do not agree with the implicit message of this warning, which assumes that somehow violence, coarse language, and nudity are somehow appropriate for adult audiences sometimes. I don't know where they got that from, but um, that's another subject for another day, and we won't go down that bunny trail today. Do you know that there are three things that sell tabloids and newspapers? They are royalty, sex, and religion. And we've got all three in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. So would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, now that I've whetted your appetite? chapter 6, and we're going to look at it today. Mark chapter 6. We have a a custom of standing to honor God's word, but if you want to stay seated for some reason, you're you're, uh, free to do so. The rest of you, I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me now and listen to God's word. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read beginning with verse 7. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, no, he is Elijah, and others claimed he is a prophet like the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. 
But because of his oath and the dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. And so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to, chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. May God bless his word today. You may be seated. Well, the passage that we have before us this morning is another example of Mark's style of writing and it's come to be known as what's called the Markan Sandwich, where Mark has, has written a, a, a story and he's, he's telling us a narrative and then he leaves that aside and he takes another story and inserts that story and tells it and then he comes back to the story, the first story, to end it again. He's done that in chapter 3, for example, when Jesus' mother and his brothers leave Nazareth and go to visit in, in, in Capernaum and start to discuss about who Jesus is. And that discussion and what the teachers of the law are saying starts to take over the, the narrative. But then later on, he comes back to Jesus' mother and brothers visiting him in the house that he's preaching and asking him to come out and so on. It happens in chapter 5 where, where Jesus... Um, is approached by Jairus, uh, a Roman leader, and, and he's told that his daughter is dying. And so Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house when in the middle of the crowd, somebody touches his cloak. And he turns around to the crowd and he asks, who touched me? And, and in the midst of that, uh, the whole scenario takes place where Jesus finds out the woman who touched him and deals with her needs. And meanwhile, a messenger comes from Jairus' house and says, your daughter's already died. Don't bother the master anymore. And so uh, Jesus looks at Jairus and says, don't worry, just have faith. Let's go. And they go, and, and Jesus ends up raising the girl from the dead. But again, there's this insert of a whole story within a greater story, and he comes back to finish it later on. Now, most often when this happens in the Gospel of Mark, we understand implicitly what's the purpose. But in the passage that we're looking at this morning in chapter 6, if you've just read it for the first time in a long while, you really have to shake your head and wonder why would it be so necessary for Mark to expand on all the graphic content of John the Baptist's death when really the subject is all about the first missionary journey of the twelve without Jesus. That's what it's all about. And he comes back to it at the end of the story. And so that's going to be the subject of our, our uh, sermon this morning and uh, really want to try and unpack some of that. Let's me, let me start by saying three reasons in, in brief, and then we're going to come back later in the message to, to dig down into one reason particularly. First of all, there's a historical reason why Mark includes the death of John the Baptist in such graphic detail. And that is because John the Baptist is a very important figure in Mark's gospel. He starts in the gospel of Mark, and he starts by saying, John came preaching repentance. And then just a, 10 verses later, he says, and then Jesus came preaching repentance. So John is a very 
key figure historically in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so just out of respect and historical clarity, he's saying this is how John the Baptist exited earth. This is how it happened historically. Another second reason might be more practical. John or Mark was very conscious of the fact that the readers that he was writing to in the first century were under the tyranny and persecution of a different king, not Herod, but Nero, who was actually more horrific than Herod was, and that the Christians were facing persecution. And so he thought it would be good for them to hear about the faithfulness of this martyr, John the Baptist, as an illustration. And then thirdly, there's another reason, I think, theologically, there's a reason why this is included. And that is because Mark views John's life and ministry as much more than just a messenger announcing the coming of Christ. And we're going to talk about that more later on. Mark actually gets John the Baptist in a way that many do not get him. Mark saw John the Baptist as a foreshadowing of the entire life and ministry of Jesus, not just a messenger announcing his coming. So we're going to talk about that later on, and that has theological significance in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your green insert and you want to follow with me, I'm going to just go down to the first point of the message, which has to do with the first missionary trip of the Twelve without Jesus. And as I get there, I just want to take an aside for a moment and put another plug on to Mission Fest. Uh, next week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at Church of the Rock. Honestly, friends, I don't know why you wouldn't be there. I mean, when do we have this opportunity? Once a year, it comes to Winnipeg. All these organizations that are working around the, the globe, and you get to go and travel through their booths, talk to their representatives. You get to hear speakers that have been in different parts of the world and see what God is up to. And um, it's free, free admission. It's an opportunity. And so I encourage you to think about even a portion of that that you might want to attend. And uh, this week, this, this year, the focus is, as, as Doug said, is on Europe. And Europe is being coined now the new dark continent. And the reason for that is because Christendom has, has kind of run its course, so to speak. And the church has grown cold and, and Christendom in, in many parts of Europe is needing revival and renewal and fresh movements of what Christ wants to do on earth are happening in Europe. We're going to hear reports about that. And so it's an opportunity to get updated in that way and plugged in. So I want to just plug Mission Fest real quickly as we, uh, as we proceed. Take Mark 6 now. And as we look at this passage, the context as we described last week is, is when Jesus has just visited, and the only time we know of, has visited his hometown of Nazareth. And he got a very cold reception there. I mean, think about this. This is a hometown boy coming back, preaching in the pulpit in the synagogue. And instead of being, wow, way to go, Jesus, go for it, he's getting persecution. He's getting opposition. He's getting people saying, who are you? Who do you think you are coming like that, teaching this new stuff? talking about your kingdom. And so they opposed him. They were offended. And that's the context for Jesus then going out and going from village to village and deciding as a disciple maker that it's time that the 12 that he's been training for about a year, it's time for them to head out and do some of their own ministry without his presence. And so that's what's happening in, uh, in verses 7 to 13. He gives them some instructions. He sends them out two by two. 
and he encourages them and gives them instructions on how to operate in this mission trip. Now, I want to say at the outset that this is not the kind of content, verses 7 to 13, that I would reprint and publish as some kind of an orientation to short-term mission team. I mean, it, it just does not transfer equally as we would see it. The, the culture of Galilee and Palestine in 1st century AD compared to Canada and the world in 21st century AD is not the same. And yet there are principles here that I think we can learn from. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some principles that I draw out of this passage, but I want to warn against making rules that would apply here. And I don't do this very often, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go with the alliteration route, okay? Everything I'm going to say right now is going to start with R, okay? So it's not hard to, you can write seven R's down your page right now if you want. And I, I get, this is corny sometimes for me, but I'm going to do it just to help, okay? So here we go. So the first thing I want us to note in these verses is representation. That Jesus says, it says in verse 7, Jesus called them, Jesus sent them, and Jesus gave them authority. And, and I want to say that if we do anything to send anybody anywhere for the sake of missions or ministry, it has to be a very clear understanding. They represent well. They represent, first of all, Jesus. And secondly, his church. And so that's very important. The disciples went out as sent ones. And as sent ones, they have an accountability. They have a mandate. They've got to represent well. Secondly, the word is reliance. The ministry that we have in the world should be characterized by reliance on God. And this is coming out especially in this message that Jesus gives in verses 8 and 9. When we're told that the apostles were to bring nothing for the journey not even a second tunic, which wealthier people would have, just a walking stick, not all the other stuff. And Jesus was talking about both check bags and, and carry-on luggage, okay? Just so you don't, you're clear on this. That was my only joke of the sermon, so if you don't laugh now, you're not going to get a chance to laugh. <laughs> the point is, Jesus is saying, don't be encumbered with a whole bunch of stuff. That's the principle that I take out. Rely on God to meet you on this trip. If he's sending you, he's going to meet you on this trip. And I want to say that, that this is really important. We're not going to translate it exactly so that we send people out and they don't take anything but a walking stick. We're not going to do that. But there's a principle here, very important. And I want you to, to know as well, Pat and I, our family, when we were on the, the mission field for seven years in Bolivia, we saw people that didn't get this. We saw people who arrived in Bolivia, or we heard of it in other countries, with a container like the one you see in the silhouette of the windows, the 40-foot container that's outside. We saw missionaries arriving on the field, and then the container arrived. And what was in the container? Well, everything that was in their house in North America was put in the container, and it was brought down to Bolivia or wherever. It was unpacked and put in their house in that country. And so when they went from their bathroom to their bedroom to their living room to their kitchen, they just felt so much at home they don't get what Jesus is talking about here the principle is don't be encumbered with all the stuffings of life don't make comfort your goal it hinders the message and the messenger and so 
Um, I remember when we were in Bolivia, the seminary that we worked at was trying to translate their ministry into some of the smaller rural areas of Bolivia. And I remember traveling with the rector of the seminary about four or five hours outside of Cochabamba into the, the hills. And, and in the off-season of farming, there were 15 young men that met us and said, we want to be trained to pastor, but we can't come to the city. Please, could you send people to come, and in the off-season, we can take one week, two weeks at a time, and we can study. And we were so excited about this. And it was just shortly after that that a pastor from Canada came to Bolivia with a team, and he said, you know what, I'm soon retiring. I want to come down here. I'm yours. Do, what, do whatever you want with me. And, and, and we thought, this is perfect. This guy, he could go to these, some of these out-of-the-way areas, and he could preach and, and teach and help them and so on. And when we told him about it, he said, no, 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 I... I just want to stay in the cities. And my heart just sank. And I don't want to be hard on him. He was older than I was. Maybe he had physical dis difficulties. I saw the straw bed that they would have provided. I've, I've been in places where I, sat on, I slept on the straw bed or I had the little table and chair and that's it, you know, for your accommodations. But friends, we can't think that, that we can go with the comforts of home. We need to rely on God to meet us in these things. I remember I heard a report from, from the team that went to Garden Hill last summer, the six women that our church sent, and, and uh, they got up there, and the Pathway Camp Ministries leaders, Elizabeth and Rick Greer, uh, they were showing them their accommodations. I guess the school was something wrong with, so they had to get this house. And Elizabeth was showing our women the house, and, and uh, I think it I think what I heard was that she, they said, well, uh, one of the women said, well, this won't comfortably sleep, five, six, eight, whatever, and Elizabeth just totally turned to the group and said, well, who has said anything about being comfortable? <laughs> and, and it's true, I mean, that wasn't part of the equation. We can't expect to take, yes? It was eight, it was eight of you, okay. <laughs> and, and, and the host slept comfortably, Whatever. doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> so uh, here is again, reliance on God. Th this principle is don't be devoted so much to yourselves and your own comforts that you miss the point. The third word is relationship. The ministry that we have in the world has to be characterized by relationship with the nationals. Relationship with the nationals. And again, I have to refer to some of our experience in Bolivia when we were given students from Tyndale University College or Columbia College out west, and they would come down for these four-month four or five-month itinerant kind of semesters, and we were to su supervise them, and we had to limit Facebook and Skype and phone calls and email. And why? Because they were so involved in relationship back home in Canada that they couldn't develop relationship with the nationals. See, that's a problem. Ministry, mission is relational. We're developing partnerships, and the, the relationship matters. And so the locals, uh, we go to their homes. Jesus says in verse 10, he instructs his followers to go into a town, stay with some of the local people until they leave that town. That is the strategy, by the way, of many countries still, many mission groups. It's, it's what they say. I remember when we uh, used to support Operation Mobilization, we had friends that went over to North Africa, some of those countries, and that was their strategy. They send them in, you go to the marketplace, you find a, a, a family, 
and you ask, can I come and rent your home? Can I stay with you? Can I eat with you? And it's all about relationship. That's how you're going to get to know the locals. That's how you're going to get to know the culture. That's how God is going to enter in his presence there. Fourthly, respect. The ministry we have must demonstrate the utmost of respect for our hosts and for all people. You see, the reason in verse 10 that Jesus instructs the 12 to stay in the home of the host until they leave that town is out of respect. Because you see, the possible scenario could come that they, they, the first people that welcome them in have a, have a kind of lowly place. And then all of a sudden, a week later, you know, the, the guy with running water and a bigger room and a nice bed comes along and says, oh, you shouldn't be staying there. Come over to my place. See, that's disrespectful. There's no way to describe it any other. That's disrespectful. So Jesus tells us, it's 12, he says, you, you go to a place and where you stay, you stay until you leave that town. Because why? Because this is why the, the decisions we make on the mission field, whether it's a short-term mission trip or a longer-term missionary, everything is measured in such a way as to determine its possible effect upon two things. Number one is the message of the gospel, and number two is the person of Jesus. You represent. And if we are, if we are just looking out for our own comforts and disrespecting the hospitality of people, then what we're saying about the message is our comforts are more important than our discomforts. And what we're saying about Jesus is that Jesus is a respecter of persons. And that's not what we're saying about Jesus at all. Another word that we see in this is, is reciprocity. The ministry that we have in the world it should show some equality in order for it to show reciprocity. Now, let me say at the outset that there will never be equality in financial economic terms for most of the sending nations of today's globe. You know, you cannot expect to compete on that level. Many countries are poor. Some professional athletes and musicians today in North America make more than the whole country does in some parts of the poor world that we live in. There's an injustice on this globe that's incredible. We're not talking about equality that way, but we are talking about reciprocity in the sense that we have something to learn from them and they have something to give us. And so Jesus tells his 12, you go and you receive hospitality and you don't take everything you have for the trip. You don't take all your resources. You don't come in like the big sugar daddy and saying, hey, we got all we need. We'll, we'll show you how it's done. That's not what God wants. That's not missions, friends. That's arrogance. That's ethnocentricity. You see, global discipleship means that I've got something to learn from that person who may be poor and uneducated, but I've got something incredible to learn because my blind spot might be my, my riches and my education. And so God has something to teach them through me and me through them. Reciprocity. Another word is repentance. The ministry we have in the world is a call to repentance. Verse 11 is a verse that can very easily be misconstrued. When Jesus tells the, the 12 to shake the dust off of their clothes when someone doesn't listen, I've heard organizations that maybe even suggest that that's what you do when some, some group or people are not listening to your teaching 
That's not what Jesus is teaching here, I believe. In fact, this is a very exceptional mission trip. Jesus had very little time to impact Israel while well, his days on earth were few. He had a mission trip he wanted to send the 12 out for. We should not take this as some kind of a principle for us. Because we know through the 2,000 years of the history of missions that many times to penetrate a hardened people and to tear down the idolatry of generations, it takes a, a long-standing sowing of the Word of God for that to break down. We must be patient. And I was talking to someone between the services this morning and they said that this still takes place in some places. It was an Old Testament prophet manner of some places rejecting you. You shake your clothes out and you leave the dust with them and you say, You're, I leave you to God now. But it's usually an insult. That's not the way the Lord sends us out. But the way the Lord does send us out will often bring rejection. And that's what I see in here because the message is repentance. And repentance is not a message you and I ever respond to. Even as believers, we don't like the word repentance. The flesh always reacts to repentance. Even as a believer, someone confronts you about something and shows you your sin. Repentance means you turn from sin, acknowledge it, and you put your faith in Jesus and you say, Lord, I'm sorry, that was wrong. Renew me. You admit your guilt. And we saw when Jesus went to Nazareth, they didn't want to hear the word of repentance. We saw that John the Baptist, when he confronted Herod and Herodias about their incestuous relationship, they didn't want to listen to it. They didn't want to hear repentance. The apostles that were going out in this ministry were told, preach repentance. Because, you see, that's the, the crux of the matter. That's the, that's the hard part of the message of Jesus. If someone says they're preaching the good news of Christ and all they're saying is, come to Jesus. You can be best friends with Jesus. He'll forgive your sins. He'll give you eternal life. And yet they're not talking about any turning from sin. It's not the gospel. It's not what Jesus preached. It's not what the apostles left us. Repentance is not an easy message. You and I will face rejection when we talk to people about what it means to follow God and we talk about repentance but there's no way to follow Jesus without repentance and so it's a, another word In verse 12 we read that the 12 went out and they preached that people should repent the final word is restoration and that uh, is that the restoring of what has been lost or robbed and in verse 13 we see that not only did they preach, but they also cast out evil spirits from people and they anointed and prayed and sick people were made well. The power of God was upon the apostles and we saw healing and we saw deliverance. And so what principle I get from this is that we don't just go out with a message, we go out with the love and the compassion of Christ to minister to the needs of people, spiritual and physical. Let's move on to the second point of the message this morning, and it has to do with the object lesson taken from real life. It's the story within the story that we're talking about now. The bridge that the apostles' mission trip has to John the Baptist's death is in verse 14. It says that King Herod heard about this, this mission trip, this popularity that Jesus had, 
and Jesus' name had become well known. And since some people were saying that Jesus was actually John the Baptist revisited, like resurrected, Herod started to feel a little uncomfortable because he was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. And so perhaps he was feeling some guilt and so on. And so that is the segue into the John the Baptist story. Now we need to know a little bit more about this in order to kind of get the point. And so let's just back up and let's for a moment just talk about Herod, okay? The Herod that is being mentioned in this text is Herod Antipas. Not to be confused with Herod the Great. Herod the Great is Herod Antipas's father. Herod the Great was the, the man in charge when Jesus was born and when all the children two years under, all the boys were killed. Herod the Great ordered that. Herod Antipas is one of his four sons, and he was a tetrarch in charge of a district of Galilee. And Herod Antipas, his mother, one of Herod the Great's many wives, was a Samaritan woman. And of course, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. And so right away, Herod Antipas is not one of their favorite rulers. But to add to that, um, one day when Herod Antipas, who was the governor of Galilee, was off visiting his half-brother Philip in Rome, he fell in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. And he came back to his own place in Galilee. He divorced his present wife, who was a woman, actually, who was the daughter of a neighboring country's king. Okay? And because of that, it actually, Josephus, the historian, tells us that that caused friction between the two countries and Herod had some wars going on because of that because he divorced the king daughter the king's daughter so he marries Herodias now but the thing that's interesting is that Herodias now in addition to being the wife of Antipas half-brother Philip Herodias is also the daughter of another half-brother okay follow me I know I'm sounding like Kevin's song I am my own grandpa uh, you know but uh, it really does get that bizarre and so in the midst of this then so uh, Herodias is both Antipas's sister-in-law and niece and now wife okay and, and it's really messed up what bottom line is if you don't follow all that that's fine bottom line is the Jews and the law of God in Leviticus said that relationship is incestuous. It is against our law. You should not be doing that. And they didn't have any bones about telling him. And the guy that was most in his face on it was, guess who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, you shouldn't be doing that. What you're doing is unlawful. God is not happy with you. And so on. And it says in verse 20 of chapter 6 that the word puzzled is actually a very small or a uh, light translation the word is actually deeply troubled perplexed in other words that when when John the Baptist talked with Herod Herod got the point that he was right and yet he didn't want to leave it he didn't want to repent and so he, he was protecting John the Baptist trying to live in both worlds now there's another part part to this that we need to get and that is that the, the little girl that did the little folklorama dance for her papa it's not quite the little girl that does a folklorama dance for her papa. And that might have been what you saw in Sunday school pictures when you grew up, but that is not what we see demonstrated here. The, the daughter of Herodias was not a little girl anymore. She was a, a young woman, perhaps married even. And 
the little dance that she does is not some folklorama thing. It is an erotic dance likened to a striptease for the guests of Herod. And by the time that we get to the evening of this dance, Herod and all of his company of men only, guests, are drunk. And they are lusting after this girl. Now this is a, a dance that no woman would have ever allowed her daughter to do ahead of a bunch of men. You need to know that. And so because of her, her, her zeal to see John the Baptist killed, Herodias stops at nothing short and, 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 and sends her daughter in to do this. And uh, in, this, in this stupid, drunken fashion at the end of the dance, Herod says in a boastful way, ahead of his guests, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, you need to know, politically speaking, the Tetrarch, he didn't even have a kingdom to give away. You know, didn't really belong to him, but he boasted anyway. And then because he boasted that and because he got that request to save face, he actually has to go through with it now. And so he sends an executioner to kill John the Baptist while the guests wait for his platter to be brought, or his head to be brought on a platter. Now all that gore, all that graphic detail, why? Well, let's go back to our question then that we began with this sermon. You see, I want you to know that Mark, the author of this gospel, gets it. He gets John the Baptist. He understands in a way that many don't understand John's purpose in life. He did not see John merely as a messenger, but as a forerunner, as a one who foreshadowed the very life and ministry of Jesus. Let me just describe some of the ways. Everything that happened to John the Baptist in a year or two is going to happen to Jesus. That's what Mark is saying. And so, what do we see? John comes preaching repentance, chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus comes preaching repentance, chapter 1, verse 14. Where did Jesus how to learn how to preach? From John the Baptist, okay? John confronts leaders in their sin. Jesus confronts religious leaders in their sins, okay? Gets them in trouble. John is handed over and put into prison. Jesus is handed over by the religious leaders and brought before a court. John is executed by a reluctant political leader at the instigation of the behind-the-scenes plot Jesus is executed by a reluctant political leader, Pilate, and at the instigation of the religious leaders of the day. Herodias seizes an opportune time to carry out her scheme. Judas seizes an opportune time to carry out his scheme. Herod is caught off guard by his reckless offer but has to follow through. Pilate is caught off guard by his reckless offer and instead of releasing or instead of Barabbas, or Jesus being released, Barabbas is released. What do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. He's caught off guard. He says, what, why? What crime has he done? And he washes his hands as if he could wash his conscience. John dies as an innocent man. Jesus dies as an innocent man. You see, the purpose of the life and ministry of John the Baptist, the person of John the Baptist, is not just say, hey, someone's coming. You've got to listen to him. It's to actually foreshadow what Jesus is going to do and what he's going to be. And for me, I think that is, is fundamental to why Mark puts this sandwich story 
in the middle of the first mission trip of the disciples. Now let's go to the third point in the, in the message, and that is the reporting back to, the apost- uh, to Jesus by the apostles. You'll see in verse 30 that the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done. What a report that would have been. They, they went out in pairs, so there were six reports coming back. Six teams of two that came back and told Jesus everything that they had done. And it says they did many things. I wonder what it was like. G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary, imagines the six teams going out kind of in the way that the disciples are introduced to us in Matthew and Mark's gospel. So if we were to do that, this is conjecture, I know, but if we were to do that, this is the teams, okay? Here's the six teams. The first, two, the first is, is, is Peter and Andrew, the brothers, fishermen. The second would be James and John, the sons of thunder, also brothers. The third would be Philip and Bartholomew, that team. The fourth is James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. The fifth is Thomas and Matthew. And the sixth would be uh, Ju- Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. And, and these are the six teams, maybe, that went out and came back to Jesus. And, and what an interesting thing. The thing that I find most noteworthy about verse 30 is the fact that we're given absolutely no detail about the reports. We don't know what happened. We don't know how it went. We know that they preached repentance, they healed some people, they cast out demons, but we don't know anything else. And you know, it's, it's a good thing, isn't it? Because if... If we'd have known more, if there had been an exhaustive report, I mean, we wouldn't accept that if a mission team were sent out from White Ridge Baptist Church came back and said, oh, we had a lot of good things happen. Trust us. We'd say, well, I'd kind of like to know a little bit more. And certainly Jesus found out more. But it's not printed in the Scriptures. Why? I think it's not printed because there would be groups throughout the last 2,000 years adopting one of the philosophies of the six teams. There would be groups that would be leaning to different methods of the different pairs like schools of thought. Some would say, well, I'm going to, we're going to, we're sons of thunder. That's the way we go out. And others would be saying, well, we're a little more timid. We're kind of the, the Matthew and Thomas, you know, the little doubters, you know. But the point is that we're not, we don't know, and it's good we don't know, because God incarnates mission and ministry through the people he sends out. It doesn't have to pattern anybody else. And so as we conclude, and I'm going to call the mission, the mission team, the worship team to come and to prepare to conclude our service. But um, you that are involved in, in life groups, I've, I've left you some questions at the bottom of the green page. And um, maybe if you're not involved in a group, just take the time maybe this week, to look at some of those questions. The bottom line is we go in Jesus' name if we go at all. We represent, and we need to represent well. Our message is repentance. We can expect that we will not be understood. We will be rejected by some. But the the message we bring is life-giving. And so, as we sing this last song, let us sing it from our hearts that we will go wherever he leads us. We will follow wherever he